Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, we're continuing in our series uh, AD 30, which is basically a chronological walk through the life of Christ. And I've entitled our message today, Turning Point, because this was sort of a key point in Jesus' ministry after which there was no going back. He was headed to the cross, and that became sort of a confirmed fact uh, based on what happens in the sermon we're gonna be discussing this morning. James Bedford was a psychology professor at the University of California. Prior to his death from cancer, He expressed his desire to be cryogenically frozen. His hope was that his body could be repaired and his consciousness revived with more advanced future technology. Bedford willed $100,000 for the preservation of his body. However, this was actually a long time ago. This was in 1967. To give you a little context, I was five. So this was uh, now being 41. I was five. And everyone was caught off guard. That was before a lot of this science had really developed. The science of cryogenics was little more than a fringe idea. There was no cryogenics industry equipped to preserve his body. To honor his wishes, though, his nurse reportedly ran up and down the block. You can't make this up. She ran up and down the block collecting ice from home freezers of neighbors. She then called the Life Extension Society, founded to promote cryo, uh, cryonic suspension of people, and Bedford became the first human to be cryogenically frozen with the hope of resurrection. After 50 years, the cost of preserving his body had long exhausted the 100 grand he had set aside. Frustrated by the high cost of storage, Bedford's son moved his father's body to a, a self-storage facility. Periodically top the container. I feel like I'm on a fishing trip and I'm topping off the salmon with ice here. Top the container with liquid nitrogen himself. In 1982, his Bedford's body was entrusted to Alcor Life Extension Foundation, but how well his body was preserved is open to question. You think? With the prospect of reviving a frozen body so improbable that there are many within the scientific community who believe that selling even the hope is unethical. Even if a medical breakthrough is made, it's highly unlikely that Bedford, with his crude vitrification process, could ever be brought back to life. But the hope that the future will change continues to drive customers to cryonics facilities. Today, and this was written a while back, there are 300 bodies and brains that are currently preserved between them. 3,000 more signed up to join them. Who doesn't want to live forever? Who doesn't want to live forever? Nobody wants their existence to end. Enormous fortunes are being spent to prolong life. If you were to research many of the billionaires in the world today, uh, the Jeffrey Bezoses, I believe um, Larry Ellison of Oracle, uh, some of these guys are putting hundreds of millions of dollars into this research because if you're a billionaire, you think you probably can live forever. Overcoming death. Living forever, bringing brought back to life is the ultimate miracle. It's not like sickness, and Jesus healed a lot of sicknesses, but you know, when Jesus healed a sickness, if you're a skeptic, you might be able to explain it away, like 
Maybe it just went into remission on its own. Maybe it was psychosomatic, mind over body. Maybe it was medicine, not a miracle. But death is permanent. If you can prove that you have power over death, that's why the resurrection is the ultimate miracle. It is the first place we should go actually when defending our faith. Timothy Keller talks about this. He says, we should be more sympathetic to our skeptical friends. The resurrection makes Christianity the most irritating religion on the face of the earth. I love that, the way he thinks. The reason is because how do people, I want you to stay with me on this. This is really critical thinking. How do people decide what they believe? They decide what they believe by reading it and saying, I like it or I don't like it. Over the years, I've had so many people say, well, I could never be a Christian, and I say, why? And they say, well, there are parts of the Bible I find offensive. I remember years ago, it had to do with money in my little church. He said people were often offended by what the Bible says about money. Today, they're much more offended by what the Bible says about sex. So I usually say this. Let me ask you a question. Are you saying that because there are parts of the Bible that you don't like, that Jesus Christ couldn't have been raised from the dead? Well, they say, no, I'm not saying that. I said, well, every part of the Bible is important, but would you please put the ethical teachings aside for a minute, and here's my point. If Jesus was raised from the dead, you're gonna have to deal with everything in the Bible. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, I don't know why you even care. But the fact of the matter is, Paul was more offended, the apostle Paul was more offended by Christianity than anyone in modern times, because he was running around killing Christians, and we don't advise that. But when he realized Jesus had been raised, it didn't matter what offended him anymore, it didn't matter because it was true, and we have to keep that in mind. The resurrection is a paradigm-shattering historical event. If the resurrection is true, chances are, the rest of the historical record is true. If the resurrection is true, Jesus is God. If the resurrection is true, the moral commands are from God. If the resurrection is true, then what Jesus said about he being the only way to God is true. If the resurrection is true, we're here for God's purposes, not our own. If the resurrection is true, it changes everything about our human experience and the afterlife. Well, Jesus isn't the only one who thought that. In fact, at the end of John 11, we see that his enemies recognize that as well. So this is about three months before the cross. So this is in the winter. We believe Jesus died and rose again in the spring. So about three months before Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus sealed his own fate from a human standpoint. Right after what we're gonna talk about today, there was a business meeting. It was the AGM between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus so offended everybody that he brought these two groups together and they didn't even like each other. The Pharisees were a conservative religious group. The Sadducees didn't even believe in a resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. Forgive me for that. I can't erase it from my mind and now you can't either. So the Sadducees were religious liberals, but they were the aristocracy, they were in good with Rome, so they controlled the political environment in Israel in that day. 
The Pharisees were the conservative religious group. These two, these two groups of people couldn't stand each other, but they were working together because more than anything, they couldn't stand Jesus of Nazareth. And so after what we're talking about today, it was decided that Jesus had to die. Others had talked about it before, but now it's over. In fact, the very person who ordered Jesus' death, Caiaphas, the high priest, made a fascinating statement at the end of John 11. He says this, it is expedient that one man should die for the people. Now what he meant was this, and actually John says he said it prophetically. He didn't believe in Jesus at all, but he said it because he thought Jesus is gonna cause such a problem here that Rome is gonna take away sort of our place in our nation. But John said it was prophetic. Jesus would die for all the people in a salvific sense. He would rescue us. The following story is what sealed Jesus' fate. John chapter 11, it's a long story. We're gonna read the first part of it. John chapter 11 is on page 81 in the Bibles in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, John chapter 11. Now a certain man uh, was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. Bethany was like a suburb of Jerusalem, about two miles outside of Jerusalem. The village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not going to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he's gonna recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep, so Jesus said then, uh, then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sake that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Three points from this passage. First, and this is not the primary point of the passage, but this is a sub-narrative that really is brought out by John, God's delays are sometimes simply setting the stage for a greater work in our lives. There are multiple layers to this narrative, as there often are in the Gospels. So there's gonna be a miracle, we're gonna see that in a little bit. There's gonna be a declaration that looks forward to Jesus' own resurrection, we're gonna see that. There's gonna be a greater commitment to Jesus' death. It's already been committed to to some degree, but now it's gonna be firm. We're gonna see that. But there's a beautiful illustration here before that about human suffering and where God is in that process. So Mary and Martha and Lazarus are siblings. They appear to be Jesus' best friends apart from the 12, and I don't think that's a reach. They seem to be Jesus' closest friends. He would visit them when he would go to Bethany. The 12, obviously, he was close to. He traveled with them. 
But when he'd get sick of the 12, he'd spend time with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They likely supported his work. It seems that they were quite wealthy because it's likely that this Mary is the woman mentioned in Matthew and Mark that John refers to, the woman who anointed Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair. Remember when she did that, she broke a really expensive perfume jar on him that costs a fortune. In fact, it caused quite a stir. People were saying, oh, this could have been given to feed the poor, and here you've wasted it on Jesus. That's when Jesus said, you always have the poor with you, but not me. So there's this controversy about what she did. She, she broke this expensive gift and poured it on Jesus and anointed him. So quite possibly, Jesus' biggest financial supporters, their brother, is sick. He's a close friend. If anyone should get good service, it's this family. And they use that, actually. So Mary and Martha have got Lazarus, he's on his deathbed, and they send a message to Jesus. He whom you love is sick. Your best friend is back here, he's dying. It's us here, okay, Jesus? We're not random Samaritans and Gentiles from your missions trips. We're your primary supporters. Lazarus is dying. They had an expectation Jesus would get there. And what does Jesus do? Absolutely nothing. Two days. For two days, he waited intentionally and he's talking back and forth with his disciples, and he says, Lazarus is asleep, and of course they take that literally, and they're assuming you know, he's not doing well, or he's sleeping, he's gonna be okay. And finally Jesus spells it out, maybe because he didn't wanna tell them right away Lazarus was going to be dead, and Lazarus wasn't dead yet, he's waiting for Lazarus to die, which doesn't seem very Jesus-like. By the time they load up, their 15-passenger van with coolers and sleeping bags and get on the road, they're headed to a funeral, not a hospital. Now the reason I wanna say this is Jesus does that to us as well. And this is actually a prominent part of this sub-narrative. We love Jesus, we're on his team, we've joined the movement, we're willing to die for him, we get in trouble, we call for help, those you love, your own, us, your team, we're not doing well. And he waits and waits and waits. And while he does that, we're trying to sort through the reasons. And there are a few possible reasons. And if you're a Christ follower, eventually you deal with this disappointment in your Christian faith and you have to sort of think through what is going on because God loves me, I'm committed to him, he's committed to me, but he's not coming through for me. So there's four options that I can see in this passage, or four options from life, and one of them is gonna to apply to this passage. One of them is God doesn't care. He's apathetic. May feel that way, we want results. That's not true. God does care, but that's a possibility. The second one is his solution is different than our proposed solution. I think that happens a lot. There's some point in life where we're all going to pass into eternity, and the reality is if, if somebody's 80 years old and they've got a cancer that's going to take their life and you're praying for healing, God may have a solution in mind that's not your solution, which is you're going to be healed, but it's gonna be on the other side of this life. 
Not necessarily what we want, but sometimes God's solution is different than our solution. Sometimes God's just saying no. And the reason he's saying no is it actually may benefit us. We may grow as a result because suffering produces that in us. We'll talk about that a little later. But in this situation, and hopefully in our lives sometimes, and I think this has happened to all of us whether we recognize it or not, sometimes Jesus is saying no because he's actually setting the stage for something bigger in the future. And his no may be temporary. It's sort of like a baseball game where it's the bottom of the ninth inning and all of the drama is there. You're down by three, the bases are loaded, somebody's at the plate, and in this case it's God. The bases are loaded, bottom of the ninth, Jesus is at the plate. A home run wins the game, you're down by three. Sometimes God does that, where he's saying no, or he's delaying his response because he's setting up a greater God situation, a greater miracle, if you will, or a greater act. And that's actually what Jesus was doing here. He allowed Lazarus to die intentionally because he wanted to do something far bigger than a healing. That's what he's doing here. God's delays are sometimes simply setting the stage for a greater work. Second, when that's going on, we cannot help but see the disconnect between God's ability and our suffering. I love the honesty of the Gospels. You don't get this everywhere. It's not that I'm saying the rest of the Bible's dishonest. I'm saying because you have these human stories and people's interactions with Jesus, they're so incredibly honest about exactly what happened and they record it that way. They tell stories and they include details about the struggle to follow Jesus. There's all kinds of doubt in the Gospels as people are trying to figure out whether they can count on Jesus and who he really is. And that goes on a lot in this story. By the time Jesus arrives, after his two-day delay and then the trip, Lazarus has been dead for four days. There's an intense period of mourning. I believe mourning in that culture would go on for about a month, and there was about seven days where you were sort of obligated to sort of go off the deep end emotionally. I mean, there was wailing, and sometimes they would actually hire professional mourners, or people, get this, People would come to the funeral, and then when you showed up, they would remind you of all the painful things that happened in your life to get you in the mood for crying. They did that. So you're supposed to cry to honor the situation. There's this intense period of mourning that Jesus walks into, and Lazarus is buried in a, in a cave, probably a very wealthy person's cave, and in that culture, that's what this, this is what that would look like. So you go in the cave, much like Jesus' cave. You have a bunch of people help you move the stone back, and then you've got a cave, you enter the cave, and in a, in a wealthy family's cave, you would have maybe up to eight ledges carved out into the limestone, all right? So you go in this cave, you're hunched down a little bit, there's eight ledges, three on each side, two on the back, and those are for bodies. Those are for bodies, sort of mummified bodies. And that's probably what they walked into there. You have these platforms with this stone sort of entrance. It's a crowded event. There's been this funeral going on for a few days. And when they get close to this, when the disciples are arriving, they park the van and they all get out. They start unloading. Martha's told about this. And so she leaves the mourners. And her first words when she gets to Jesus are exactly what you and I think. They're an absolute accusation against Jesus. Lord, verse 21, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
Well, if that was the only time we saw it, we might think, well, that's interesting and not a major part of the text. But next, Mary eventually recognizes what's going on. Jesus sends for her. We get to verse 32, and what does she say? She fell at his feet. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's verbatim, the same statement. And next, as they see Jesus seeming to care about this, the crowd comes to the same conclusion. How can Jesus really look like he cares when the reality is, if he had been there, and this is what they say, verse 37, could not this man, Jesus, who opened the eyes of the blind, have kept this man also from dying? In other words, we know Jesus' track record, whether they believe he's God or not. We know his track record. He's a miracle worker. It seems like this would not have been out of the scope of possibility if he had just shown up on time. That's a theme in this little pericope or story. And it's a theme in my life It's a theme in your life when situations, and because we believe in a sovereign God, when God disappoints. And if you believe in and follow Jesus, you know what he can do. And you're dealing with suffering, and you believe God is capable of doing anything, and there's this massive disconnect between the two. They knew based on Jesus' own record, lepers were cleansed. Blind people see, lame people walk. Jesus has proven that he has power over nature. He's walked on water, he's calmed the storms, he has power over demons, he's cast them out. He has power over sickness, he's healed every manner of disease. He's had power over death because there's a couple of situations before this chapter where he raised people from the dead. Both were children, I believe, that little girl, Jairus' daughter, and I believe another woman's son. And now all that pent-up divinity is four days too late. It was an inescapable reality. It is an inescapable reality. We are connected to a God who could and can solve every problem we have, heal every disease that we deal with, prevent every difficulty. And he often doesn't. But in this case, we know he was just setting the stage for a greater work. Now in this passage, which I also think we need to see, in this part of the narrative, we also see the other side of this, which might surprise you, because Jesus seems a little calloused here, delayed the road trip, till his friend, one of his best friends, been dead for four days. Jesus gets to the tomb, And this is where you have the shortest verse in the Bible. Everyone knows that shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept, verse 35. Now actually, when we got our Bibles, there weren't little numbers in there, so whoever put the numbers in there made this the shortest verse in the Bible. So it's really not a big deal, but I'm just pointing it out. Kind of like sad, you see. You'll never forget that. Jesus wept, shortest verse in the Bible. So Jesus gets to the tomb. You know, there's mourning going on, and he's caught up in the emotion of the event, And I think also because Jesus recognizes what we deal with in our world and in our lives, and he does share concern for it, even though he could step in and often doesn't, it doesn't mean that he doesn't feel anything. And I think that's hard for us to grasp. 
But Jesus is here in the middle of his funeral procession, and he, he starts weeping. In the next verse, see how he loved him? So during this time that Jesus is allowing bad things to happen to good people, we assume apathy. He must not feel anything or indifference. He doesn't care. He's got some greater plan, but it sure doesn't look like he gives a rip about me. Or deism, a little mild deism never killed anyone. God created a closed system and he doesn't intervene. He's sort of far removed from it. Yet when we look at the passage, Jesus is crying at the same time he's withholding his power to do something about it. And I think that's instructive. Don't assume, don't assume by the lack of God's intervention that we understand God's attitude and perspective. Don't just dump to the conclusion that he doesn't care, which is really easy to do. And this is a great illustration of it. Didn't intervene the way we'd like, but he's crying along with everyone else. This is a broken world. And heaven is the fix. Not necessarily a better world here. I would love a better world here. I've got prayer requests about certain things going on in the world that you might not approve of in order to make things right. But heaven is the real fix for a broken world. And sometimes, in answer to prayer, and because of the compassion of the God we love, sometimes we get a little heaven here. We get a miracle. God intervenes in a way that demonstrates heaven is here, the kingdom is here. But it's not promised. That's why heaven's supposed to be so much better. It's not promised. Well, you might say, well, why would I want that God? He can do anything he wants, and he leaves us hanging. Why would you want that God? Back to Timothy Keller's illustration. Does it matter if Jesus rose from the dead? He's God. And we're not gonna fully understand the way this world operates and why on this side of heaven. We cannot help but see the disconnect between God's ability and our suffering. And third, and the primary point of the passage, the author's primary intention, Jesus claims and demonstrates power over death and eternal life. Three months later, an empty tomb would create the greatest debate in salvation history. If Jesus is raised, we can be raised. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. If Jesus is raised, we can be raised. Sin is atoned for. Death is defeated. He alone is the path to heaven. On this day, three months earlier, Jesus makes a statement related to his own resurrection when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. It's the first time he said that. In John, you have these, you know, I am the door, I am the sheepfold, etc. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe that? This was a precursor to his own resurrection. It wasn't just an isolated miracle. It wasn't just him making a point that he could do this. It was him making a point that he operated, he owned the realm of life after death. 
This was all about who he was, that he was God. When he's praying about Lazarus' resurrection, he says to the Father, I want them to know that you sent me, that I'm God's son. It was about his dominion over all things. So with that in mind, Jesus approaches the grave, and it's this cave I talked about with all these shelves for bodies. It's all closed up and sealed. There's a lot of people there. He asked that it be opened. And he got some pushback. Very practical matters started coming to mind from Lazarus' sister, like, uh, Jesus, it's been four days, and we've been in a little bit of a heat wave here. It's not going to smell good. If you wanted to say your goodbyes to Lazarus, you needed to do that four days ago. Hence my earlier point. If you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. So even though Jesus had raised the dead before, those were a couple of children, and when those kinds of things happened, they were explainable. Maybe a coma, or maybe it was more private. This was very public, and it was four days in a tomb. Full decay in process. Full processing of the body. People had, had been with Jesus and put spices along his body. They'd sort of wrapped him in cloths where he looked like a mummy a little bit in this situation. Lazarus had been through all of that. If he was just in a coma, they would have heard the breathing. They would have felt the pulse. And obviously, the great theological question that I'm not really talking about but it's going on in your head is, where was his soul during these four days? You know, I think about that. Uh, you can debate that for hours in seminary. You don't have the answer. I mean, it's a tough one. It's interesting. So Jesus has him remove the door, stone. Verse 41, Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done, and that's when they had their AGM and committed to putting him to death. Lazarus lived. He became the most influential miracle around Jerusalem as it related to believing in Jesus. This was Jesus' greatest work. And it was the last straw for his enemies. He had to die. But now, his resurrection, if they remembered, should be a more believable event. Because he said, I am the resurrection and the life. A couple applications as we close. First, do I believe in the resurrection or nothing at all? You say, what do you mean by that, Paul? Or nothing at all. I would believe in nothing. Understand my point. The apostles who wrote the New Testament would be shocked by modernity and religious modernity because they believed that all of Christianity, everything we believe in, is centered on a resurrected Christ. They said it. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, if, so get this. What he's saying is, if Jesus isn't risen, you're not very bright to be here this morning. 
The Apostle Paul said, if Jesus isn't risen, and some people were questioning it even in the middle of the first century, and he said, actually, there's 500 people who saw Jesus after his death. You can go find them in every Starbucks and Caribou around the country. He said, they're there. You can still talk to them. They saw a resurrected Christ. But he said, let me make the theological point. If Christ isn't risen, we can never be risen ourselves either. Then death is the end. If Christ isn't risen, he said, our preaching is vain and your faith is in vain. He said, if Christ isn't risen, we become false witnesses about God. If Christ isn't risen, you're still in your sins. There's no atonement because you need a resurrection to prove that that atonement satisfied a holy God. If Christ isn't risen, he said, we should be pitied. In other words, Paul was not a believer in liberal Christianity. His view was, if Christ isn't risen, shut your churches down and watch more NFL football or CFL football and the tennis finals today in California. There is no Christianity without a risen Christ. Do you really wanna be like Jesus, who thought he was God and wasn't? We institutionalize those kinds of Jesuses. There is no room for a liberal view of Jesus. Either he is God, and he is risen, or he's a fraudulent Messiah, and there is no reason to build a religious movement on a fraud like that Jesus. That was Paul's view, and he wrote a lot of the New Testament. Second, do I use the resurrection as the ultimate issue in my witness? What I mean by that is this. Everyone knows what if you went to college and you had a classroom setting, which I know was something we did right after the Civil War when I went to college, but you know, with the online world, we don't necessarily see that as much anymore and, you know, with COVID and everything, but there was a time, young people, where we went to college, went to class, there were other students, there was like a teacher up front, it was really cool. We could talk, we could talk to them, we could question them, it was neat. It was called education. So we'd go there and we've got, you know, a professor there and, you know, he's got all these degrees and, you know, it's 7.40 in the morning, it's the first class, we're bored stiff. So what do you do? You try to get your college professor or your seminary professor to go down a rabbit trail. You know, you sort of get them off topic because we got the syllabus and it's boring and yeah, we're gonna be tested on it, but who cares? We wanna get them on some interesting topic. And so you do that, you get them off the main topic. It's fun and exciting. And at the end of class, you kind of look at each other like, yeah, we did it, that was good. And we learned something. It wasn't just all for naught. We learned some things that way. But sometimes rabbit trails keep us from the most important topic. It's the same thing when we're talking to people about faith issues. The resurrection is everything. Who cares what this book says if it's not true? And so there are all kinds of people who want to get you down every rabbit hole. What do you think Jesus thinks about this? What do you think Jesus thinks about this movement or this group of people or this, that group of people or this specific thing that the Bible calls sin? Forget it. Who cares? Is Jesus risen from the dead? Is Jesus a historical figure? Is Jesus God? Because if he is, everything else falls in place. Let's focus on that. Ken Davis writes about a woman who looked out of her window and saw her German shepherd shaking the life out of her neighbor's rabbit. Her family didn't get along well with these neighbors, so this was gonna be a disaster. She grabbed a broom, 
She pummeled the dog until it dropped the now extremely dead rabbit out of its mouth. She panicked. She didn't know what else to do. So she grabbed the rabbit. She took it inside. She gave it a bath. She blow-dried it to its original fluffiness. She combed it until that rabbit was looking good. And she went back in her neighbor's yard. She propped the rabbit back up in its cage, kept her dog away from it. She's thinking she's going to get away with this. An hour later, she hears screaming coming from next door. And she asked her neighbor, what's going on? A rabbit. He died two weeks ago. We buried him, and now he's back. (laughs) The only thing that would make that better if it was a cat, but nonetheless. Resurrection changes everything. It's the only thing that matters. So when we're trying to talk to people about Jesus, understand that that's the most important issue in people's minds. Is there a source of truth I can rely on? And if there's a resurrection, then it is this book. And finally, when I struggle, or do I struggle with God's compassion when I'm in life's valleys? And the answer to that for Paul is, yes, I do a lot. I kind of look at my life this way. When things are good, man, Jesus is right there. Thank you, Jesus, life is good, you must be with me. When things are going bad, I feel absolutely abandoned. When things are going bad and they turn back to good, it's like I'm back, which means he's back. And that is really stinking thinking. I, I have a doctorate in stinking thinking in that area, but it is stinking thinking, he never left. He always cared, but it is really hard for us to believe that when we suffer. It's against sort of the logic, or theological logic. We should know better, but we we struggle with that, at least I do. But remember, there's more going on with suffering. There are a variety of things that could be going on. It's possible God doesn't care. I think we should rule that out. It's possible his solution is different than ours. It's possible he's saying no because he wants us to grow, and it's possible he's setting the stage for a greater work. Simon Wheel, or Simone Wheel says, the extreme greatness of Christianity lies in the fact that it doesn't seek a supernatural remedy for suffering, but a supernatural use for it. I don't like it, but one of the reasons we suffer is God will make us more mature. Not my highest ideal. I'd rather have less suffering and less maturity. I'll get fixed in heaven. I, I, I don't need to be that close to Jesus on this earth. I just want to make sure I end up in the right place. He'll fix it all then. I'd rather not suffer. I'd rather have a really nice life and die at 95 in the middle of my sleep and have generations of my children and grandchildren all following Jesus with no issues in life. That's what I want. See, God has other plans sometimes for using suffering in ways that we don't appreciate but are good for us. Man has places in his heart which do not yet exist, and into them enters suffering in order that they may have existence. In other words, there's a part of us that's only developed through hardship. Leon Blois, French Catholic writer, convert from Judaism. There's a whole part of you that is formed by hardship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in a letter to his twin sister, says this. 
It is good to learn early enough that suffering and God are not a contradiction, but rather a unity. For the idea that God himself is suffering is one that has always been one of the most convincing teachings of Christianity. I think God is nearer to suffering than to happiness. And to find God in this way gives peace and rest and a strong and courageous heart. So my last word to you on this would be something that I'm saying to myself because I really stink at this is maybe when you're going through a hard time, maybe when I'm going through a hard time, Jesus is weeping a little bit more than we think. Maybe Jesus is weeping right along with you. I think that's true. I think it's hard to believe and feel sometimes. But he is weeping with us because he sees the brokenness of this world. He sees the brokenness of our lives, and it will be made better someday. And he may leave us in situations we don't appreciate, but it doesn't mean that he doesn't care. After I pray, we're gonna have our worship team come up, and if you've got a a prayer request or a need in your life for yourself or a friend or anything, uh, we'll have our prayer team come forward as well, and if if you're on our prayer teams and you see an absence in part of the stage and it's not your weekend to do it, just if you'd come forward or other elders, we'd appreciate that. But if you've got a need or a burden on your heart, take advantage of that during this last song as they lead us as well and, and uh, we'd love to pray for you. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for the person of Jesus as you came into this world in the body of your son to die for us and to be raised again, and in your resurrection, that's our hope. Without it, there's no reason to believe that Jesus is God, but with it, changes everything, changes our future, it gives us a path to heaven, to eternal life, to a bodily resurrection. But in this passage, we also see this sort of contradiction between what you allow in our lives and how much you care, and I pray that more than anything today, that we would have a greater sense that when we're going through hard times, you haven't abandoned us. You're likely crying right along with us. You're not apathetic or uncaring. You're touched by it too. Sometimes we'll never understand why you just don't fix things for us, but that is heaven. It's not necessarily this earth. And I pray that you would help us to be people of faith in the middle of difficulty as you use it to change us and to give us hope for a better future in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again, and God bless you.